there are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, we hope you're having a great day. Welcome to NTD. Good morning, here's a look at our top stories. One step closer to avoiding a shutdown. House lawmakers pass newly elected Speaker Johnson's two-step funding plan. How did Democrats vote? Victims of the Chinese Communist Party's human rights abuses protesting Xi Jinping in San Francisco. Their stories and what the protests mean for the upcoming Biden-Xi meeting. Iris Tao reports for us. Military communication lines and lethal fentanyl chemicals flowing in from China. What you need to know about President Biden's meeting today with Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping. Anytime, any place, heated words and threats of violence on Capitol Hill as a senator squares off with a union leader. Israeli forces begin what they say is a precise and targeted raid inside Gaza's largest hospital. We have more about the operation and the gun battle that erupted on the way in. What's at the root of anti-Semitism on college campuses? A defender of constitutional rights tells NTD it traces back to Marxist ideas alongside students' confusion over their viewpoints. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Today is Wednesday, November 15th, and it really sounds like that you dug deep on that anti-Semitism and on the roots. Yes, Sharice Trump, free speech advocate, she's talking about how parents can actually take steps to shelter their kids from anti-Semitism on college campuses, and part of that is really assessing how these schools go about responding to this, and she's even considering telling people to actually think about other schools like those in Texas compared to the Ivy Leagues, which are the front runners of American education. Well, definitely very relevant nowadays, but um, we are heading today's news to something else. Congress is one step closer to avoiding a government shutdown. House lawmakers passed Speaker Johnson's two-step funding plan yesterday. A similar bipartisan deal was the last straw that led to former Speaker Kevin McCarthy losing the gavel. But Johnson says the current bill is a step in the right direction that accepts the reality of working with a divided Congress. Melina Wisecup has more from Capitol Hill.
And it sailed through the House easily with an overwhelming majority of lawmakers supporting it. The total was 336 to 95. But the interesting thing about this vote is that more Democrats supported it than Republicans. There were 209 Democrats who supported it. Compare that with only 127 Republicans who supported it. There were 93 Republicans who opposed it. We did know that there were, would be a significant number of Republicans to oppose this, especially after the House Freedom Caucus, which represents around uh, three dozen Republican lawmakers put out a statement opposing it. I'll read you exactly what they said. They're opposed because it contains no spending reductions, no border security, and not a single meaningful win for the American people. And while we remain committed to working with Speaker Johnson, we need bold change. I do want to point out that last sentence, though, because it does reflect a different reality for Speaker Johnson than we saw of former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, because it does show that even though Republicans, a lot of them, oppose this continuing resolution, he still has the trust of the caucus. And despite the fact that an overwhelming uh, amount of Republicans did oppose this continuing resolution, Johnson did try to paint this as a win. It is different than past continuing resolutions. It's a laddered approach, which essentially means it's divided into two parts. One part expires January, one part expires in February, and it also allows them to avoid having to pass a spending bill at the end of the year. Now, an interesting thing about Johnson, though, is that in the past, he always opposed continuing resolutions, even the one they recently passed back uh, before former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was ousted. I asked him how he feels about having to now go against his conscience and having to put something on the floor that he has long opposed in principle. Here's how he responded to that. Well, look, getting us beyond the shutdown and making sure that government stays in operation is, is a matter of conscience for all of us. Look, it took decades to get into this mess, right? I've been at the job less than three weeks, right? I can't change. I can't turn an aircraft carrier overnight. We expect it to easily sail forward in the Senate because Senate Leader Chuck Schumer has expressed openness to it. He says that he's pleased actually with the GOP-led bill because it doesn't contain any so-called poison pills. It doesn't contain any spending cuts. So we do expect it to easily pass through the Senate later this week. As for how the White House will handle it, the White House has been critical of it, but they've stopped short of saying that President Biden would veto it. When Biden was asked directly about whether or not he would veto it, he refrained from answering that question directly. So we do expect to see some Democrat consensus in the Senate and in the White House around this bill. And we hear from a congressman later about gaining bipartisan support for a long-term funding solution. Yes, and as President Biden is set to meet with Chinese dictator Xi Jinping in San Francisco, victims of Beijing's human rights abuses are condemning the regime. And today's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more from the APEC summit in San Francisco. As President Biden landed here in San Francisco for the APEC summit, protests are ongoing against the head of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping. Earlier on Tuesday, we were outside of the hotel where Xi is reportedly staying with the Chinese delegation, which is right across from here, the summit venue. And we saw this group of anti-CCP protesters who say they're victims of the Chinese Communist Party's human rights persecution in China. And the scene of clashing happens as they confronted a group of pro-CCP people 
who were reportedly hired by the New York Chinese consulate to come all the way to here to San Francisco to show support for the Chinese communist regime. Let's take a look at the scene and hear what the anti-CCP people had to tell us. So we're right now right outside the hotel where the Chinese delegation is staying here in San Francisco for the APEC summit and we're seeing a huge group of both pro-CCP and anti-CCP protesters clashing right here with the anti-CCP group yelling that the CCP has been killing people and harming their property and lives while the other group are also waving the Chinese Communist Party flags. Sources told the Epoch Times that a Chinese consulate in New York hired Chinese locals to come all the way to San Francisco by providing them with free food, free hotel and free flights. And critics say that it's a manifestation of the Chinese Communist Party's exploitation of freedoms here enjoyed on U.S. soil to promote communist ideas. And of course, for the next two days, more protests are planned, especially on Wednesday, which is when President Biden is set to meet with Xi. And now the pressure is mounting for President Biden to emphasize human rights issues with the Chinese dictator. Reporting in San Francisco, Iris Tao, NTD News. It's interesting to see so many people uh, finding their voices now against the CCP. Yes, and it is really important report that we have here because you're going to hear the firsthand accounts of people because it's just so hard to get real information out of mainland China itself. Mm. And it's, that's important to note because also if you have family in mainland China, that provides the CCP with another, it's not just economic coercion, right, because they actually threaten people with their family members. And I mean, NTD can talk um, from firsthand experience as well. That's why we know this. So I think that's remarkable that they're stepping out here. Yes, very brave. So we're moving on. High stakes talks between President Biden and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping are set for today. The rare face-to-face -face meeting will take place on the sidelines of the APEC summit in San Francisco. It's the first time in six years the Communist Party leader has visited the U.S. The last time the two met was a year ago in, Din in Indonesia. It's a first in-person meeting since. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on what you need to know about their meeting. President Biden landed in San Francisco Tuesday ahead of his meeting with Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping. The White House says re-establishing a direct military-to-military -military line of communications will be a key topic brought up in talks Wednesday. Biden says a successful meeting would mean getting those military contacts back in place, allowing communication during a crisis. To get back on a normal course of corresponding. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan called the ties in communications between the two militaries critical. The Chinese have basically severed those communication links. President Biden would like to reestablish them. The president and the speaker have arrived. The CCP cut ties in August last year, after former Speaker Nancy Pelosi made a visit to Taiwan. The self-ruled island will be another key topic of discussion. Sullivan says Biden will set out a vision for peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. The Biden administration maintains nothing has changed about its one-China policy and says it doesn't support Taiwan's independence. But the U.S. has continued to supply weapons to Taiwan under Biden due to China's aggressive actions under Xi in the South China Sea. Biden has said U.S. forces would defend Taiwan in the case of an attack and answered yes when asked if it would go as far to put boots on the ground. 
although the White House later walked back and clarified his comment. Also on Biden's agenda is the CCP's role in the Israel-Hamas war and the war in Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin and Xi met in Beijing last month, where they called for close foreign policy coordination. China's ties to Iran are also in the spotlight after its terrorist proxies stepped up attacks on U.S. troops in the Middle East. But one of the main priorities Sullivan says Biden will bring up is stopping fentanyl precursor chemicals flowing in from China. U.S. officials say small chemical businesses make them and ship them to Mexico to make the deadly drug up to 50 times stronger than heroin. Then it's smuggled by cartels into the U.S. The CDC reported the rate of overdose deaths from the drug more than tripled from 2016 to 2021. Sullivan says progress containing the opioid epidemic could open the door to cooperation on other crucial issues. GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley cast doubt on Biden's meeting, saying he's likely to focus on climate change instead of fentanyl coming into the U.S. across the southern border and the threat from Iran. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, we'll bring in Congressman Bob Good from Virginia to discuss the long-term solution for the looming government shutdown. And a senator and a union leader almost come to blows during a Senate hearing until a Vermont lawmaker pounds the gavel and pleads for order. Texas lawmakers send the governor a bill that would make illegal border crossing a criminal offense in the state. Hear what critics and the ACLU have to say about it. A Senate panel has approved a measure to unblock the nine-month-old hold on military promotions, but it's not a done deal yet. We have that story after the break. to have you back. We're seeing a change of strategy. Former President Donald Trump is dropping his appeal to move his New York criminal case to federal court. No reason was provided in the Tuesday brief filed in the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg unsealed a 34-count indictment against the 45th president in April. It alleges Trump's falsified business records to cover up bribery payments. President Trump has pleaded not guilty to all counts. His legal team has already filed several motions attempting to reposition the case. They have argued for its dismissal, for the judge to recuse himself, and to move the state criminal case to federal court, which was denied. And continuing with the former president, a Michigan judge ruled yesterday that Trump will remain on the state's primary ballot. Judge Redford wrote that challenges based on the 14th Amendment were premature. The amendment prevents those who took part in rebellions or insurrections from holding office. The judge argued that whether Trump should be disqualified under the amendment cannot be decided during primary elections. He said the 14th Amendment could possibly be invoked if Trump won the primaries and the general election, but at that point it would be up to Congress to decide on any disqualification. State Senate Democrats have taken a step to end a nine-month hold on military promotions. The Senate Rules Committee adopted a procedural change yesterday. It would allow senators to bypass the hold imposed by Senator Tommy Tuberville. Tuberville is protesting a Pentagon policy that covers travel expenses for abortion. His hold has led to nearly 400 nominations left unconfirmed. All Democrats on the committee endorsed the proposal, while all Republicans voted against it. The full Senate must still approve the measure, which needs at least nine GOP votes for passage. 
It's uncertain how many Senate Republicans will oppose it. Before the Tuberville hold, the Senate routinely approved promotions by unanimous consent without recording a vote on each nominee. If the proposed measure passes, the Senate will quickly approve hundreds of nominees. And Texas lawmakers sent a border bill to Governor Abbott's desk for his signature yesterday. The bill would make illegal border crossing a misdemeanor offense in Texas. It would allow law enforcement to arrest illegal immigrants and require a judge to order offenders to leave the U.S. instead of being prosecuted. Critics say it will cost counties millions of dollars in jail costs and, let, and lead to racial profiling in the state. The ACLU is threatening to sue if Abbott signs the bill. A separate bill passed the Texas House yesterday. It would allocate $1.5 billion for a border wall. It will go back to the Senate for another vote. And tempers flaring on Capitol Hill. A senator threw down the gauntlet and challenged a union president to fisticuffs on a Senate building floor. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the ruckus that Senator Bernie Sanders had to break up. It all began on X, formerly known as Twitter. Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma became heated after reading a series of tweets. One, two, three, four. Mullen said the posts were written about him and shared by Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien. Pretends like he's self-made. What a clown. Fraud. Always has been. Always will be. Quick the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me, any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. You want to run your mouth? We can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, hold, stop it. Is that your solution every poll? No, no, sit down. Oh, Eric, sit down. Okay. Senator Bernie Sanders admonished the pair, reminding Mullen he's a United States senator. Hold it, hold it. And God knows the American people have enough of contempt for Congress. Let's not I don't make like it worse. Thug. But the lawmaker and union leader resumed their argument, saying they didn't respect each other. And Sanders had to again step in and remind them why they were there. This is a hearing to discuss economic issues. I mean, but we're not here to talk about fights or I'm, anything else. I'm but former college wrestler Mullen, who also won three professional MMA bouts way back when, wasn't ready to toss in the towel. He challenged O'Brien to a cage match next year at a charity event called Smoke and Guns, held annually in Tulsa. You want to fight me? What do you say by any time, any place? Let's have coffee, discuss our differences. Oh, oh. Sanders, staying on message after the hearing, had some fighting words of his own. It might be nice for the media to pay attention to really what the hearing was about, is that workers all over this country uh, are standing up and fighting back against corporate greed. There was a happy ending of sorts to the whole affair. Later on, a calmer Mullen said he would take up O'Brien's invitation to hash out their differences over a cup of joe. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The House passed the stopgap bill to avoid a government shutdown, and now it's heading to the Senate. Here with us now to discuss this and the looming deadline is Congressman Bob Good from Virginia. Congressman Good, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us this morning. Why do we keep running into these government shutdown standoffs and what's the long-term solution? 
Well, only four times in the last 50 years has Congress done its primary job, which is to pass its 12 appropriation bills, to appropriately fund the government, to uh, hold accountable every area of government, every, every agency, every bureaucracy, every spending matter, and to be accountable to the voters, those who elect them, on, on whether or not to reallocate those taxpayer, hard-earned taxpayer funds. But Congress typically fails to do that. And as you saw last year, there was, an, there was a Christmas omnibus spending bill, a $1.7 trillion bill, primarily passed by Democrats with a few liberal Republicans joining them. And uh, we're committed not to doing that again this year. Speaker Johnson is committed to not doing that again this year. Now, admittedly, he inherited a difficult situation, becoming Speaker, uh, obviously, in mid-October, so a challenging situation for him. We've put in a new quarterback in the fourth quarter when you're down 35 nothing and you've lost uh, the first 10 games of the season. That's the Republican Party leadership from the past that we're trying to change with Speaker Johnson. Well, thanks for breaking that down for us. And how is it possible to get bipartisan support for this plan to prevent these standoffs? Well, the Republican majority ought to uh, do what we ran on. We ought to cut our spending. Uh, I didn't vote for the spending bill uh, yesterday because it didn't do that. It was just extending the Biden-Pelosi-Schumer policies for another 60 to 75 days, uh, keeping in place the spending levels and the policies that are destroying the country, quite frankly. And that's why you had uh, 93 Republicans vote against it. You had 127 Republicans voted for it. But Democrats voted for it 209 to 2 because it kept in place all the policies they, they uh, put in place a year ago. Uh, so what we've got to do is, as a Republican Party, commit to cutting our spending, back our speaker in his efforts to do that, support new Speaker Johnson in making the tough decisions, the things that we told the American people that we would do. Congressman Good, as you mentioned, you wanted spending reductions, border security, and policy wins for the American people in this plan. But were you willing to risk shutting down the government, especially considering that a shutdown could deal a heavy blow to the economy, especially in Virginia, where they depend on federal defense spending in areas like Hampton Roads? Well, I don't think anybody really wants a government shutdown per se, but we shouldn't fear a government shutdown. I've said that for months. We shouldn't fear that in the sense that we'll do anything to avoid it, meaning continuing to further exacerbate our debt situation. We're running a $200 billion deficit every month. We're on track for about a $2.4 trillion deficit this year. We're going to be at some $36 trillion in debt by the end of this Congress a year from now going into the next election. That's what Republicans have to run on right now. We don't have border security. We don't have spending cuts. We haven't done anything to make a difference for the American people from a fiscal standpoint. We're realizing we're suffering under massive 40-year high inflation, 20-year high interest rates. So is it more important to cut our spending and to get our fiscal house in order than it is to suffer a temporary pause in the 15% of non-essential government operations? Yes, it would be willing to do that in order to get our fiscal house in order. And we've got to be willing to tell the Democrats no instead of continuing to cave and do what Democrats want, which is how we've gotten to the debt situation that we're in now. Congressman Good, Moody's Investor Service downgraded the nation's credit rating outlook from stable to negative, and they cited rising deficits, which is something that you just touched on, as well as institutional infighting. So how do we solve both of those? Well, what, what they're citing there is that our unwillingness to do what we tell the American people we will do, which is get our fiscal house in order. Uh, you, 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 our debt is unsustainable. Our interest on our debt is going to be nearly a trillion dollars soon just to pay the interest to sustain the debt. It's snowballing so fast now because of the, the, the monthly $200 billion deficit I mentioned, the interest that's accumulating to the, to the rate of, of nearly a trillion dollars just to service the debt on an annual basis. It's going so fast. 
We've got to cut our spending. I know it's, it's a simple refrain, but it is the truth. And Republicans have to show the willingness to, to make those tough decisions, to have the stomach for it. Uh, the American people know this is unsustainable. And the way we earn the majority next year in the November elections of 24 is by doing what we said we would do. Congressman, just in two sentences, what are some of the unjustified spending that needs to be cut? Well, I'll give you just one example would be the work requirements for we have exploded the welfare, cash welfare, housing subsistence, food stamps. Uh, that has exploded uh, in COVID, and you took away all the work requirements from that standpoint. Uh, Biden stripped those all away. We're, we need to put those back in place, not only and cut the cut the welfare, but also it was key to growing our economy and getting our revenue going in as well. Congressman Bob Good from Virginia, thank you so much for your time. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me again. And we're moving to Israel. Gun battles and tanks outside the gates of Al-Shifa's, Gaza's largest hospital. Find out about Israel's overnight operation after the break. Thanks for staying with us. Israel launched a targeted operation inside Al-Shifa Hospital overnight. The Israel Defense Forces say the raid was an operational necessity based on intelligence. A gun battle reportedly erupted outside the gates as Israeli forces moved in. Israel says its troops killed terrorists in the clash after being confronted by Hamas squads and explosives on their approach. The IDF says tanks delivered incubators, baby food and medical supplies and that medical teams and Arabic speaking soldiers are on the ground to ensure the supplies get to those in need. A doctor there told CNN that a 30 minute warning was given before the operation began. He said at one point a tank was parked outside the emergency department. An Israeli army spokesman said the area is a hub of Hamas operations and could be the beating heart or even the center of gravity for the terrorist group. He described the operation as ongoing. The IDF said in a statement to Al-Shifa that its goal is to defeat Hamas and rescue hostages. It restated that its war is not against civilians in Gaza. Israel says it has arranged wide-scale evacuations at Al-Shifa and talks regularly with hospital authorities. It called on all Hamas terrorists in the hospital to surrender. There have been no reports of hostages found so far. And if hospitals, schools and religious sites are used to store weapons or conduct military operations, they're liable to lose protected status under international humanitarian law. Israel says it will not airstrike any hospital, but that it needs to carry out a precise and targeted operation in a specific area inside Al-Shifa. Yeah, and more on this topic, more people are evacuating Al-Shifa as the U.S. confirms Hamas terrorists are using it to hide. Just a warning, the following footage may be disturbing for some viewers due to its graphic nature. Thousands are fleeing the Al-Shifa hospital as fighting continues in the Gaza Strip. Al-Shifa is the biggest hospital of the territory and the only one still operating in the northern part of Gaza. The Israeli military says Hamas terrorists have been hiding in and beneath the hospital and using it to hold hostages. The Biden administration on Tuesday confirmed Israel's claim. You know, we do have information that Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad uses some hospitals in the Gaza Strip, including the Al-Shifa hospital, um, 
as a way to conceal and support their military operations and hold hostages. They have tunnels underneath these hospitals. The United Nations says 200,000 people have fled from northern to southern Gaza in the past 10 days. The Israeli military says it has seized a series of Hamas government buildings in central Gaza City. That includes the Hamas parliament, Hamas police headquarters, and a compound housing Hamas military intelligence headquarters. To show the extent that Hamas is using civilian structures to hide, Israeli forces posted photos of a Hamas tunnel shaft they found in a mosque. The defense minister said the campaign against Hamas will take many months to complete. And regarding the hostage situation, both sides said a 19-year-old Israeli soldier who was captured in the October 7th attack has died in captivity. She is the first hostage confirmed to have died. Hamas released a video late Monday showing Noah Marciano identifying herself, then showed images of what appeared to be her dead body. Families of hostages have begun a protest march on Tuesday from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, demanding that the Israeli government do more to secure the release of the hostages. My niece is three years old, my nephew is eight years old, and my cousin is 12 years old. My mother was taken, my sister, my sister's husband, and my aunt. They were all taken 39 days ago. They don't have any more time. Participants on Tuesday started off with a minute of silence in Marciano's memory. The 40-mile march will take five days and reach Prime Minister Netanyahu's office. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Coming up, Senate Republicans try to force a vote on a bill for aid to Israel, but Democrats aren't having it. The FBI launches investigations into individuals considered to be connected to the Hamas terrorist group. A sea of Israeli flags flowing through the nation's capital, tens of thousands from across the country gathering in D.C. today in a show of solidarity with Israel. George Washington University puts a temporary ban on a pro-Palestine group. The group is now restricted from holding its activities or sharing posts on campus. We have more on what's behind the ban. What can parents do to combat the wave of anti-Semitism covering institutes of higher education? A free speech advocate lays out some possibilities for us after the break. Good to have you back. In a breach of protocol yesterday, Senate Republicans forced a procedural vote on a bill for aid to Israel. Although the bill passed in the House weeks ago, Senate Democrats quickly moved to kill the bill by tabling it. The current bill would give Israel over $14 billion in aid by slashing the IRS budget to help pay for it. Democratic senators support aid to Israel, but they're against cutting IRS funds and want to tie aid for Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan into a single package. And the FBI is conducting multiple investigations into people it believes are affiliated with Hamas. That's what Director Christopher Wray is expected to tell a House panel today. According to prepared remarks, he will highlight the global terror threat stemming from the Israel-Hamas war. Ray's most immediate concern is homegrown violent extremists inspired by the foreign terror organization, as well as violent extremists targeting Jewish and Muslim Americans. Even so, Ray will encourage Americans to go about their daily lives.
and a sea of Israeli and U.S. flags flying over the National Mall, tens of thousands from around the country gathering for what appears to be the largest pro-Israel rally in the U.S. since the Hamas terror attack last month. NTD Sam Wong brings us more. At the nation's capital today, tens of thousands are gathering for the March for Israel rally, and many of them actually traveled across the country just for this historical occasion. And of course, they're here to uh, condemn the rise of anti-Semitism here in the U.S., while also voicing solidarity for hostages held in captivities by Hamas terrorists. All right, let's turn to the crowd and see how they feel today. All right, guys, what's your name? I'm Isabel. Okay, and how do we feel today? What is your reaction to this uh, historical event? I think it's really important to be here. We all flew in just for the day to, at the same time, show our support for Israel, but also oppose all the anti-Semitic acts we've been seeing happening on college campuses and around the world. Our Jewish students are going to stand up no matter what. We're going to be marching on our campuses, educating on our campuses, to be able to counter what is going on on our campuses. But it's beautiful to see that all of these people are here for one purpose, and that purpose is Israel. When there is a problem in Israel, everybody gets together, and the same in America, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter because they want Israel to live. Throngs of demonstrators, many draped in Israeli flags, filled the National Mall all the way to the Washington Monument. Organizers believe there are more than 200,000 people in attendance, well exceeding expectations. In the midst of Israel's war with Hamas terrorists, protesters are demanding the immediate release of the hostages still held in the Gaza Strip. Some of the hostages' family members, as well as some U.S. lawmakers, are also in attendance to address the crowd. We hostage families have lived the last 39 days in slow motion torment. History shows that when the world ignored anti-Semitism in the last century, it led to the worst catastrophe in human history. Israel will cease their counteroffensive when Hamas ceases to be a threat to the Jewish state. And the security is tight in the surrounding areas. Road closures have been in place since this morning. Law enforcement, accompanied by the National Guard, were present at every street corner. The Department of Homeland Security classified the march as a level one security event, the highest risk assessment level in the system. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NPD News. And on that topic, George Washington University has introduced new measures to tackle anti-Semitism. The university temporarily suspended a group in support of Palestine after it posted anti-Israel messaging on campus. The university found the group Students for Justice in Palestine, or SJP, violated its policies. Last month, the group posted a series of anti-Semitic messages in a library on campus. The group was then banned from any campus activities for three months. SJP is also banned from posting any communications until May next year. The messages posted include calls for, quote, divestment from Zionist genocide now and free Palestine from the river to the sea. Lawmakers from both parties condemn the calls. An SJP representative said that the ban comes as no surprise. Last week, similar measures were taken by Columbia University, which banned the group from organizing any events or posting any messages on university property. Next, we address the root of hatred against Jews on college campuses. Earlier, I spoke with Sharice Trump, the executive director of Speech First. 
I asked her if some students who think they are protesting against Israeli policies are actually engaging in anti-Semitism. This is what she told me. Well, I think a lot of students are ultimately not fully informed or even slightly confused about what position they're taking here, because I think students typically, you know, who fall into this far left position usually see it as, you know, oppressor versus oppressed, but now they find themselves supporting terrorist activity um, against Israeli innocents, and they often are not sure how to respond to that, and, you know, in a lot of ways end up towing the same uh, the same line. Uh, and it's important that students recognize what the connections here between the far left woke ideology of oppressor and oppressed and ends justifying the means uh, when it comes to these types of tactics and what that means uh, with regards to Israel and their positions um, uh, with regards to their own fellow students on campus who happen to be Jewish. So, Sharice, what is the root of this violent anti-Semitism as evidenced by the student who was arrested at Cornell for wanting to shoot up an area building that was often used by Jewish students? Well, I think what we're ultimately seeing here is the culmination of this concept that ends justify the means. And the reason I bring that up is because it is so crucial to the far left kind of woke ideology. You have over 30% of college students in a recent survey saying that they think it's okay to use violence against uh, people who have speech that they disagree with. So they, again, it, it's, it's, it, they're willing to take this much further and it comes back to this kind of this root and this stem of where this ideology comes from uh, in that they are operating in a very rigid viewpoint that doesn't make room for nuance, that only creates an incredible amount of division through identitarian politics by separating people into groups. And we can trace this all the way back to Marxist ideology where you put people into, like we mentioned, groups of oppressor and oppressed. But that's a very rigid way of looking at the world and looking at conflicts around the world. Um, but it forces you to basically take you know, a no-holds-barred position against whoever you determine as the oppressor. Uh, and it doesn't really allow you to open up the idea that maybe these people on my on my campus, my peers, uh, might have something to say or might have an opinion that I respect in some way. If, if There's no room for listening or discussion in this conversation. And when we talk about the root, I'll add to this that even the American Communist Party was painting the conflict in the Middle East between Palestine and Israel as more of a, a battle between classes and looked at this as like the, the Zionists were land grabbers, but we just know that these are peaceful migrants that came there. So this is really something that needs to be explored much more deeper. But just briefly here, Sharice, what can parents and students do to prevent harm from anti-Semitism on campus? Well, we've seen a lot of response from the alumni and the donor community um, with regards to what's been going on campus. Look, there's nothing stopping universities from condemning terrorism. The fact that they hesitated on this front should be very telling about where their positions lie on a lot of these issues. Uh, and uh, I think parents should really take note of that. You know, the Ivy Leagues are at the center of all of this. They're supposed to be the most elite institutions in higher education. And they're the ones that struggled the most to figure out how to approach the situation because either they feared the woke mob on their campus or they uh, actually believe in that political agenda that the, the mob actually wants to pursue. So I think parents need a second guess about like what, what actually qualifies as an elite institution, start reevaluating um, what what virtues and what traits they want their students to come out or their their, their children to come out of college with um, and understand that maybe uh, it's it's worth looking into other uh, alternatives such as University of Austin or Hillsdale or some of these colleges that really espouse concepts like free speech and expression but also don't uh, put Jews in a position where they actually fear for their lives on college campuses. 
Therese Trump, Executive Director of Speech First, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. I think she brought up very interesting points, and in the end, right, there is, it's war, it's an extreme situation, there, is extreme, there are extreme narratives, but I think it's important to not forget that the common humanity, I think people have more in common than they think, and I think that's saving innocent lives, right? And then that goes back what we talked to before about that binary thought. In the end, I guess like Cherise pointed out, that is Marxist thought, it's us against them, and it's kind of um, dehumanizing the other side. Yeah, saving innocent lives. It's something we can all get around. And of course, that's, that's a primary goal from the IDF, as we've seen, by giving fuel and taking other measures to protect civilians, especially in the hospital. And, you know, just a little more context on this. The rise in anti-Semitism actually has been brewing for the last 20 years, and it started with that right. boycott, divestiture, and sanctions movement after the mm -hmm. Infitata. Oh, wow. That's, that's interesting. That's a good mm -hmm. point to raise. All right. Uh, we're heading to break. Coming up, the UAW's deal with automakers could be in trouble as a growing number of workers vote against it. We speak to the host of NTD Business to get more details. Formula One is coming to Las Vegas. Construction for the race is underway, giving the iconic strip a new look. Check it out after the break. Good morning again and welcome back. The UAW's deal to end the strike at GM and Ford could be in trouble. A growing number of rank and file auto workers are voting against the deal. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma. Thank you for your time, Don. Yeah, good to be here as always. So why is this deal in trouble? Yeah, so I reported here on, uh, on the morning show before that uh, when they reached an, an agreement, that was actually a tentative agreement, so it still needs to be voted on. Um, so two GM plants actually voted no on this deal, and that's a Spring Hill, Tennessee plant and, and a Flint, Michigan plant. So at Spring Hill, nearly 70% uh, uh, voted no, and at Spring Hill, 52% uh, voted no. So, I mean, overall, uh, the GM vote is down to just 52% in favor of this uh, tentative deal. Um, and, and the same thing at Ford, right? Uh, 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 we're seeing a similar situation. Uh, some plants also voting no against the deal. Um, so, you know, it, it remains to be seen what happens next. Right, so a lot of no's that I'm hearing. So how likely is it that the UAW strikes will actually resume those two automakers? Um, well, as of right now, uh, it still has the majority of support uh, from the automakers, but neither vote is actually large enough at this point in time to ensure passage uh, of this deal. Um, a, a vote tracker actually shows that support actually decreased uh, around 5% uh, since they started voting. So there's that, but if a no vote actually happens, that would mean the resumption of the strike potentially. Um, and if that happens, I guess both sides need to go back to the negotiating table. But you know, I have to point out, Sean Fain has said that uh, these were record deals. So I don't know how much more uh, can employees get if uh, we were to go back to the negotiating table. Um, so you know, yeah, so that's the, just the gist of uh, what's happening now. 
Seems like in some of those cases, they were able to get significant support, just although not enough. I want to turn to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They were saying that inflation came in a bit cooler than in the previous month. But can you tell us a bit more about the effects and the significance of this number? Yeah, sure. Um, like we talked about before, uh, this cooler number, uh, we're talking about inflation. So, you know, when I hear some outlets say that uh, this cooler number could give consumers some relief, uh, you know, that may not necessarily be true because uh, we're tracking inflation here, which means the growth of prices. Um, if inflation is cooler, that means prices are increasing at a slower pace. It doesn't mean prices are getting cheaper for consumers. So as for how consumers are feeling, if you're paying $4 uh, for a gallon of gasoline, for example, uh, you're, you're not going to pay $3 if inflation slows down. It just means it won't go up as fast. Good point there. And I want to change topics for a moment here. So Disney came out with some big claims yesterday. So it, with Disney still battling DeSantis in court, how has that actually impacted uh, the Florida's economy? Sure. Well, Disney says it has $40 billion uh, of economic impact in Florida uh, as it battles DeSantis in court. Uh, Disney released a study yesterday showing its economic impact in Florida is, uh, like I said, uh, a, a, a lot of money here. The report comes as Disney fights Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, over the takeover of the district governing the theme park resort in Central Florida, as uh, Evelyn mentioned just now. Uh, the report by Oxford Economics says Disney accounted for over 250,000 jobs in Florida. Uh, this, of course, including theme parks, resorts, uh, cruise lines. Uh, the multi-billion dollar impact included other inflation influences like supply chain and employee spending. The study covers fiscal year 2022 before the DeSantis takeover. Just a quick update from me. Yeah, Governor DeSantis has been busy in the culture war battles and even evidenced by his challenge to some restaurants taking on drag shows. So he says handful. Yeah, I mean, let's see how this uh, plays out. Host of NTD Business, Don Ma, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. And today with us, the Las Vegas Strip is nearly unrecognizable. Construction for this week's long-anticipated Grand Prix race now blocks off iconic views. Let's take a look. On streets usually choked with taxis, buses, rental cars, and pedestrians posing for selfies, the Las Vegas Strip has transformed into a site for Formula One racers this week. When the inaugural Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix was announced a year ago, tickets and hotel packages sold for tens of thousands of dollars per guest. Organizers have a 10-year permit for the race. Las Vegas is going to be known for these big things and be expected to live up to the hype. And that's part of the Las Vegas ethos, if you will, for the Strip, having to live up to the hype. Road work began in April, and race organizers asked Clark County to contribute half of the estimated $80 million cost of street repaving. Jim Gibson, chairman of the Clark County Commission, said last week that talks will continue after the race. Officials acknowledged that parking spots will be scarce for race fans and hotel workers alike. That you have extremely wealthy people who are going to be attending, and you have them coming here expecting a very high level of service, which Las Vegas is known for. And the people providing the service are facing some challenges of their own because they're not going to be able to get to work so easily. They may have to work longer. 
Despite the hype, tourists who are visiting to see the strip scenery and not the race are disappointed to see construction blocking the views. I know a lot of people love the fountains. You know, it's a pretty cool show. Uh, it's something I like to watch every time I come to Vegas. So it's definitely a bummer, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, I've walked this morning and a lot has changed. It's all barricades and things blocked and construction and traffic. One of the big things was to see the Bellagio fountain and right now you can't even view it from the strip. The Las Vegas Grand Prix is expected to draw more than 100,000 fans each of three nights from November 16th to 18th. It features elite drivers racing open cockpit vehicles on a 3.8-mile course at speeds sometimes topping 200 miles per hour. Racing starts at 10 p.m. local time. Officials estimate the event will draw more than $1 billion to the local economy. Living up to the hype indeed, although I have heard that, you know, they overestimated the attendance a little bit. They have walked back some of the statements, but let's see. Oh, that's interesting. Well, yeah, it's perfectly fitting for Las Vegas. A lot of fun happening there. For sure. All right. Uh, we are heading to a quick break and we'll be back soon. So stay with us. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here's a look at our top stories. President Biden meets with Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping today. Military communication lines and fentanyl chemicals flowing in from China are just some of the topics on Biden's agenda. A new report says China is training foreign militaries to undermine U.S. global influence. An Epic Times reporter covering this tells us the details, including China's coordination with authoritarian states. Where is the anti-Semitism on college campuses coming from? A defender of constitutional rights tells NTD this traces back to Marxist ideas alongside students' confusion over their viewpoints. The House of Representatives passes a short-term spending bill, a step closer to averting a government shutdown. Find out what's in the bill and what comes next. Visiting grandma is always a fun time, and that's especially the case with this fluffy duo. We hear their story coming up. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Wednesday, November 15th, and we're heading right to our top news today. 
High-stakes talks between President Biden and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping are set for today. The rare face-to-face meeting will take place on the sidelines of the APEC summit, summit in San Francisco. It's the first time in six years the Communist Party leader has visited the U.S. The last time the two met was a year ago in Indonesia. It's the first in-person meeting since. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on what you need to know about their meeting. President Biden landed in San Francisco Tuesday ahead of his meeting with Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping. The White House says re-establishing a direct military-to-military line of communications will be a key topic brought up in talks Wednesday. Biden says a successful meeting would mean getting those military contacts back in place, allowing communication during a crisis. To get back on a normal course of corresponding. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan called the ties in communications between the two militaries critical. The Chinese have basically severed those communication links. President Biden would like to reestablish them. The president and the speaker have arrived. The CCP cut ties in August last year, after former Speaker Nancy Pelosi made a visit to Taiwan. The self-ruled island will be another key topic of discussion. Sullivan says Biden will set out a vision for peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. The Biden administration maintains nothing has changed about its one-China policy and says it doesn't support Taiwan's independence. But the U.S. has continued to supply weapons to Taiwan under Biden due to China's aggressive actions under Xi in the South China Sea. Biden has said U.S. forces would defend Taiwan in the case of an attack and answered yes when asked if it would go as far to put boots on the ground, although the White House later walked back and clarified his comment. Also on Biden's agenda is the CCP's role in the Israel-Hamas war and the war in Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin and Xi met in Beijing last month, where they called for close foreign policy coordination. China's ties to Iran are also in the spotlight after its terrorist proxies stepped up attacks on U.S. troops in the Middle East. But one of the main priorities Sullivan says Biden will bring up is stopping fentanyl precursor chemicals flowing in from China. U.S. officials say small chemical businesses make them and ship them to Mexico to make the deadly drug up to 50 times stronger than heroin. Then it's smuggled by cartels into the U.S. The CDC reported the rate of overdose deaths from the drug more than tripled from 2016 to 2021. Sullivan says progress containing the opioid epidemic could open the door to cooperation on other crucial issues. GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley cast doubt on Biden's meeting, saying he's likely to focus on climate change instead of fentanyl coming into the U.S. across the southern border and the threat from Iran. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Let's turn our attention to China's efforts to upend the United States' global influence. Joining me now to discuss this is Andrew Thornbrook, national security correspondent for the Epic Times. Andrew, good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Can you please start by outlining the key findings of this new congressional report about this? Yeah, so the major findings in this new uh, report, this is the annual report of the uh, U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission's Congressional Commission uh, designed to just provide these annual reports on China's power to Congress every year. Uh, one of the key findings in terms of its military uh, aspect is that China is progressively seeking to expand the number of trainings it does with foreign militaries, including providing them with arms, providing them with you know, officer training, things like this, as well as uh, conducting exercises to learn how to operate together, which is something that's fairly new for China. And it's doing all of this in an effort to essentially establish itself as a rival to the United States or an alternative for uh, authoritarian powers, you might say, much in the same ways as it's doing with its uh, diplomatic and economic spheres. 
Right, and history shows us that the United States will train other allies' militaries in order to promote more security here, but China obviously is often in contrast to the international rules-based order. So according to this report, how extensive are the Chinese regime's actions to coordinate with authoritarian states? Yeah, it depends on the country. Uh, obviously, Russia is, is really the biggest partner in this regard, and they have increased their, their military-to-military uh, capabilities quite significantly. Um, so what we're seeing now is something we've really never seen China be willing to do, which is that it's increasing interoperability with Russian forces, meaning they're increasing their ability to really work together as cohesive units. It's still far, far behind the United States capability in that terms with its own allies. Uh, but we are seeing much more of that kind of effort to try to at least emulate the U.S. model. Uh, we saw this probably best earlier in the year when we saw the largest uh, ever Russian-Chinese uh, naval fleet sail past uh, the Alaskan coast, of course. Uh, and the key message here is that China is trying to build up these sort of anti-U.S. Uh, military alliances and push back and bring the military threat closer to the U.S. homeland. Uh, kind of say, you know what, you put your ships in our backyard, we're going to put them in yours. Right, and from what I was reading from this report, actually Iran, a state sponsor of terrorism, was actually on the receiving end of some of these arms from China as well. How is China seeking to generate a positive image of itself through these efforts? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, so, so one of the things that China has done is it's tried to increasingly use its military almost as a, a diplomatic bludgeon. We, we have uh, delegations at security forums, for example, the Shangri-La Dialogue, Chinese delegations essentially being sent with orders to uh, refute and shout down anyone who, who claims or, or speaks of ill about uh, China's malign influence throughout the South China Sea, for example, or points out the fact that it's massive expansion there is in fact illegal and against international law um and so that's one aspect uh, as far as the other diplomatic aspect it really is trying to use its military uh to essentially increase diplomatic ties with powers that might otherwise be pariah to the international system iran is a good example of this right uh, china is offering this alternative to nations like russia and iran who can essentially no longer participate well in the international system because of their continued uh, rule breaking. Well, thank you for this very important update. Andrew Thornbrook, National Security Correspondent for the Epic Times. Thank you so much for having me. And after a short break, we have what parents can do to combat the wave of anti-Semitism covering institutes of higher education. A free speech advocate lays out some possibilities in an interview with us. And the House of Representatives passes a stopgap spending bill, moving a step closer to avoiding a government shutdown. Find out what's in the bill and what comes next. Visiting grandma is always a fun time. That's especially in the case with this fluffy duo. We hear their stories coming up.
Welcome back. The House of Representatives passed a short-term spending bill last night that would avert a government shutdown. Democrats and Republicans overwhelmingly supported the measure. The government is set to run out of money late Friday. The two-part House measure would fund some government departments through January 19th. Others would get funding through February 2nd. The bill does not include more aid for Israel or Ukraine. The bill now needs approval by the Senate. President Biden has indicated he would sign it if it gets full congressional approval. And earlier I spoke with Virginia Representative Bob Good to get more details into the bill and why the government is always running into shutdown standoffs. Well, only four times in the last 50 years has Congress done its primary job, which is to pass its 12 appropriation bills to appropriately fund the government, to uh, hold accountable every area of government, every, every agency, every bureaucracy, every spending matter, and to be accountable to the voters, those who elect them, on, on whether or not to reallocate those taxpayer, hard-earned taxpayer funds. But Congress typically fails to do that. And as you saw last year, there was, an, there was a Christmas omnibus spending bill, a $1.7 trillion bill, primarily passed by Democrats with a few liberal Republicans joining them. And uh, we're committed not to doing that again this year. Speaker Johnson is committed to not doing that again this year. Now, admittedly, he inherited a difficult situation, becoming Speaker, uh, obviously, in mid-October, so a challenging situation for him. We've put in a new quarterback in the fourth quarter when you're down 35 nothing and you've lost uh, the first 10 games of the season. That's the Republican Party leadership from the past that we're trying to change with Speaker Johnson. Congressman Good, as you mentioned, you wanted spending reductions, border security, and policy wins for the American people in this plan. But were you willing to risk shutting down the government, especially considering that a shutdown could deal a heavy blow to the economy, especially in Virginia, where they depend on federal defense spending in areas like Hampton Roads? Well, I don't think anybody really wants a government shutdown per se, but we shouldn't fear a government shutdown. I've said that for months. We shouldn't fear that in the sense that we'll do anything to avoid it, meaning continuing to further exacerbate our debt situation. We're running a $200 billion deficit every month. We're on track for about a $2.4 trillion deficit this year. We're going to be at some $36 trillion in debt by the end of this Congress a year from now, going into the next election. That's what Republicans have to run on right now. We don't have border security. We don't have spending cuts. We haven't done anything to make a difference for the American people from a fiscal standpoint. We're realizing we're suffering under massive 40-year high inflation, 20-year high interest rates. So is it more important to cut our spending and to get our fiscal house in order than it is to suffer a temporary pause in the 15% of non-essential government operations? Yes, it would be willing to do that in order to get our fiscal house in order. And we've got to be willing to tell the Democrats no instead of continuing to cave and do what Democrats want, which is how we've gotten to the debt situation that we're in now. George Washington University has introduced new measures to tackle anti-Semitism. The university temporarily suspended a group in support of Palestine after it posted anti-Israel messaging on campus. The university found the group Students for Justice in Palestine, or SJP, violated its policies. Last month, the group posted a series of anti-Semitic messages in a library on campus. The group was then banned from any campus activities for three months. SJP is also banned from posting any communications until May next year. The messages posted include calls for, quote, divestment from Zionist genocide now and free Palestine from the river to the sea. Lawmakers from both parties condemned the calls. An SJP representative said that the ban comes as no surprise, 
Last week, similar measures were taken by Columbia University, which banned the group from organizing any events or posting any messages on university property. Next, we assess the root of hatred against Jews on college campuses. Earlier, I spoke with Sharice Trump, the executive director of Speech First. I asked her if some students who think they are protesting against Israeli policies are actually engaging in anti-Semitism. This is what she told me. Well, I think a lot of students are ultimately not fully informed or even slightly confused about what position they're taking here because I think students typically, you know, who fall into this far left position usually see it as, you know, oppressor versus oppressed, but now they find themselves supporting terrorist activity um, against Israeli innocents, and they often are not sure how to respond to that, and, you know, in a lot of ways end up towing the same, uh, the same line. Uh, and it's important that students recognize what the connections here between the far-left woke ideology of oppressor and oppressed and ends justifying the means uh, when it comes to these types of tactics and what that means uh, with regards to Israel and their positions um, uh, with regards to their own fellow students on campus who happen to be Jewish. So, Sharice, what is the root of this violent anti-Semitism as evidenced by the student who was arrested at Cornell for wanting to shoot up an area building that was often used by Jewish students? Well, I think what we're ultimately seeing here is the culmination of this concept that ends justify the means. And the reason I bring that up is because it is so crucial to the far left kind of woke ideology. You have over 30% of college students in a recent survey saying that they think it's okay to use violence against uh, people who have speech that they disagree with. So they, again, it, it's, it's, it, they're willing to take this much further and it comes back to this kind of this root and this stem of where this ideology comes from uh, in that they are operating in a very rigid viewpoint that doesn't make room for nuance, that only creates an incredible amount of division through identitarian politics by separating people into groups. And we can trace this all the way back to Marxist ideology where you put people into, like we mentioned, groups of oppressor and oppressed. But just briefly here, Cherise, what can parents and students do to prevent harm from anti-Semitism on campus? Well, we've seen a lot of response from the alumni and the donor community um, with regards to what's been going on campus. Look, there's nothing stopping universities from condemning terrorism. The fact that they hesitated on this front should be very telling about where their positions lie on a lot of these issues. Uh, and uh, I think parents should really take note of that. You know, the Ivy Leagues are at the center of all of this. They're supposed to be the most elite institutions in higher education. And they're the ones that struggled the most to figure out how to approach the situation because either they feared the woke mob on their campus or they uh, actually believe in that political agenda that the, the mob actually wants to pursue. So I think parents need a second guess about like what, what actually qualifies as an elite institution, start reevaluating um, what what virtues and what traits they want their students to come out or their their, their children to come out of college with um, and understand that maybe uh, it's it's worth looking into other uh, alternatives such as University of Austin or Hillsdale or some of these colleges that really espouse concepts like free speech and expression but also don't uh, put Jews in a position where they actually fear for their lives on college campuses. Therese Trump, Executive Director of Speech First, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an interesting update that she brings to the table because this is not something new. It's just it's been sparked, obviously, by this October 7th terrorist mm -hmm. attack by Hamas on Israel, but even goes back to the boycott, divestiture and sanctions movement that was following the intifada of the Palestinian uprising. Right. 
Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, that's very interesting and in, um, that people should not lose sight of their common humanity. But I think this is something that seems like we have heard before, right? In all the protests, it seems like analysis tells us that there's um, communist movements that take opportunistic, that that's opportunism for them and they kind of, it sounds like to me they're hijacking this and um, making it about, um, you know, inciting more extremism between those two sides as we, and, and maybe that's what we are seeing here. I don't know, you spoke to, um, you spoke to Cherie, so I'm not sure if she was mentioning anything like like that as well. Yeah, Cherise points out some of those deep communist Marxist roots that's embedded in this type of thought that's coming out to the surface now. And I mean, we see it even just from Jewish alumni pulling out, you know, a lot of their donations or at least threatening to do so from Harvard, the Ivy League that she was mentioning due to anti-Semitism. Mm, right. Yeah, well, very interesting and something to really keep an eye on here because also uh, just one last thing at the APEC demonstration, for example, you see a lot of times you hear, you know, it, it's just our first reaction. Oh, I don't think communism has a place in the U.S., right? But um, in, in the demonstration, you will actually seeing a group of people holding up signs and pictures of Marx, of Mao Zedong, of Lenin, of uh, Engels, and they were just marching down the street. So I think there is something that we, you know, that, that's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, very important to understand history and with all of that. Mm. Well, and moving on now, a company in Riverside aims to lead by example. They're training and employing individuals with disabilities, giving them opportunities in the workforce. Entity's Stephanie Sakal has more from the CEO and a success story. A Riverside-based company is leading initiatives to train and employ local individuals with intellectual disabilities who secured their first job through a work-study program with Phoenix Technology Incorporated. Known for global production of helmets for firefighters, the company received funding in June from the California Department of Rehabilitation to expand operations and enhance the Opportunity for All work-study program. CEO Angel Sanchez outlines the program's approach. The program really was just started as a way to um, provide opportunities for those uh, who really have faced the most significant barriers to employment. Um, those in the neurodiverse community, uh, those with intellectual and developmental and even physical disabilities. The program includes targeted hiring, a work-study program, employer guides, promoting awareness among external employers, and collaboration with legislators to fund workforce opportunity programs. We always focus uh, on the disability in the general community, and, and really what we're tar starting to do is focus on the ability and, and what people are capable of accomplishing. The program aims to address workforce challenges, particularly in the Inland Empire, where thousands with autism are ready to work. Mark Hernandez's success showcases the capabilities of individuals with intellectual disabilities. Help me learn more about nonverbal communication than anything else. Before, I didn't have much good eye contact will develop people into senior executive positions, uh, whether they're, it's for Phoenix or for other companies. But really, there is no limitation to um, anyone that is labeled um, to have a disability. Phoenix aims to break the glass ceiling and expand opportunities for those labeled with disabilities. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News, California. And now we're moving on to some furry news. Let's meet Teddy and Leo. They're new Funland dogs, big, fluffy, gentle giants. And this puppy duo loves spending time at Grandma's house. 
Nana Ismet loves her grandkids, but while grandkids may grow less excited to see their family with age, that's not the case with Teddy and Leo. Her daughter says she developed a soft spot for dogs, and eventually she and her husband decided on not, not one but two Newfoundland dogs. More the merrier. Nana gives them the royal grandkid treatment. Whenever they visit, the cuddles begin. Oh my gosh, they look like bears. Yeah, it's just this so big. <laughs> oh man, I'd love to have one. That's awesome. Anyway, um, we have to wrap up our show right here now. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.